Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hi, Melissa. How are you doing? Hey, Lisa. Welcome to December. Yes, it's so very exciting. If you love wintertime, which I don't. Yeah, Yeah. we've had snow just um, really once, and I'm thinking, oh boy, we got to get the snow tires on and get ready. Well, anyway, on a happier note, maybe, did you have a teacher in your life who left an indelible mark on you as a student? I did. You know, I had some really wonderful teachers as a child and teen, but I think the most profound impact a teacher had on me was a teacher who actually really truly, for some reason, did not like me. And it changed the course of my young teen years, I think. We had moved from living in a suburb of Seattle to a small town. And my dad was a new school administrator in this town. And, you know, I didn't know anybody. I had no friends. We moved right before school started. And this teacher, I really still to this day do not know why she didn't seem to like me. But for the very first time in my life, I didn't feel secure at school. I had in the past loved school, like loved it so much, loved all my teachers, loved my classmates. And all of a sudden that changed dramatically with this teacher. I think it impacted me in in a lot of ways. I mean, I could tell stories, which I won't, but yeah, teachers have a very profound influence on children. And I know that from my own experience. And I know that from watching my kids now who are in school. Oh, that's so sad. That wasn't a happy story at all. So Sorry. Sorry to disappoint. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So is there any possible way this teacher is still alive? No, I don't think so. She was older when she was my teacher, although older, I was what, nine or 10. So maybe she was 50. I don't know. I don't know. But I I doubt it. Maybe she was 20. Yeah. No, she wasn't. (laughs) But I think she had kids in their 20s. So I know know she wasn't. But um, if she were still... Because I was going to say, Mrs. What was her name? <laughs> Mrs. Pennington. You know, you never forget these Mrs. things. Mrs. Pennington, if you're out there, what was? <laughs> why didn't you love Lisa? I don't know. I don't know why. But, but really, I tried very hard to make her like me. I remember writing this book of original poems that I hand wrote out and gave to her. I tried a lot of things. And it just, for whatever reason, I was definitely not her favorite. Oh, she must have been a sad, there was something, I'm sure it was something in her life. It was not a reflection of you. Maybe. (laughs) Anyway, so this week we're talking a little bit about school through Stacey Manning's story. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about Stacey Lisa since you got to interview her? Yes, Stacey's great. She's really, really an interesting woman. She is a nurse and mom of six kids and a grandmother of one who I believe she cares for full-time, her granddaughter. You know, she adopted early, earlier than most of us, and there were not the resources that we have now. So she did her research and basically developed her own way of reframing her mind about her kids and then beginning to teach it to other people through early support groups. She lives in Minnesota. She has a book called Adoptive Parent, Intentional Parent, which we'll have links to all of this in the show notes, so you don't have to worry about about writing it all down right now. She also has a few different Facebook communities, one just called Adoptive and Foster Parenting, and another, which is an intentional parent coaching group 
um, where she really supports thousands of families. But the thing that probably interests me the most right now beyond her story, which is also very interesting, is that she hosts a new Facebook group community called Trauma-Sensitive Teachers. And she just recently launched a program to help create trauma-sensitive classrooms around the country. That, from my own personal perspective and as a mom, I find really encouraging and interesting. Yeah, I'm excited to hear what she has to say about that. Well, today we're welcoming Stacy Manning to the Adoption Connection podcast. Stacy, thanks for being here with me. Absolutely, my pleasure. So I think um, it would be really nice to start with just hearing a little bit about you, about your family, you know, where you live, and we'll hear about your adoption story. Sure. Uh, well, my husband and I had six kids um, and now our granddaughter full-time. We live in Minnesota on a little 40-acre hobby farm, <laughs> um, actually not far from where I grew up, so that's awesome. Um, it was a great place to be a kid, and I, I feel really fortunate that we got to raise our kids here as well. We had our son, bio sons, three bio sons first, early in our marriage because we were old. <laughs> okay, we were so 29, 29 and old. my husband was four years older. Yeah, in my head, I was old. And so we had them early in our marriage, but we, um, you know, we were mature, we were ready and we were just, we had such an awesome life. We were so blessed. We had a great job and I got to stay home with them. I'm a nurse as well. I did do some nursing and then I had always thought about adopting my heart was, is always for kids. And so um, I started talking to my husband about it and he was okay. You know, I wasn't sure. We decided that because of my husband's great job, we had the means to go and we, we ended up doing an international adoption and truly just decided that um, since we had the means, we would do that. There were half a million orphans at the time in Russia, and so that's where we ended up. We were going to adopt two little girls is what we decided. I'm the only girl in my family, so we thought, oh, a sister, I thought a sister would be great on and on you make all these plans and yes. um, yeah all these great ideas we have <laughs> yeah, yeah which yeah so one day um the agency called and when we adopted you got to look at a bunch of pictures and then you chose and you got to see video and it was very different than it's done now or than and it's been done in the last so tell years. us what, what year was that approximately 2000 2000 um, okay 2000, we started looking. Our um, sons were three, two, and one, basically. So the agency called and they said, we'd like to come look at some pictures. So I went. She showed me, I remember a little girl, and I said, oh, that girl needs a mom. And then everyone she showed me. But then finally, we got to, I think, the third little girl. And actually, she looked. it looked exactly like my kindergarten picture except she had a great big bow in her hair like they do the Russian orphanages do. And I was like dumbfounded. And then she said, well, and she has a sister. And so she showed me the next sister. And then she said, and they have a third sister, which makes them very unadoptable because oh. um, they don't like to separate children there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you could do this. So anyway, it was my husband's 44th birthday. <laughs> I brought him home that night. We, I was having a surprise birthday party for him. So I made it all the way through the party without saying anything. 
showed him and he looked at the pictures and he said, these are our girls. And I said, that's what I thought. And thus began the story of, you know, traveling to a foreign country, kind of a scary foreign country back then. After two trips, we got them home, uh, brought them home to our sons. It was very scary. Go ahead. I was going to ask, how old were the girls when they came home? Or how old did you think they were? And was that accurate? Right. No. And Mm -hmm. so by the time we got them home, they were four, three, and two. And our boys were four, three, and two. Um, oh, wow. So we literally have, yeah, we kind of have three sets of twins. The oldest apart are the two oldest, and they're four months apart. So it, that was crazy. Like I said, God had a plan already. Um, wow. I didn't wow. really need to worry about it. All. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, yeah, the scary part was we were supposed to fly two weeks after 9-11 um, for our first trip to get the girls, or to meet the girls. You had to go twice. And so it got really scary leaving our boys here or bringing them there. What do we do? But um, finally, in 2001, November 2001, uh, we brought them home. It was actually a really quick adoption considering Russia. What was life like with six young children, three of whom had probably been through a lot of trauma and difficulty before they joined your family? Yeah, tons of trauma. And actually, as it worked out, they were almost another year older by the time they came. So, I mean, they were, so what we had was six kids in a span of four years of age wise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we really, I'll be honest with you. Um, we, I just thought, okay, I'm doing okay with the boys. They're the same ages. I'm just going to do everything the same. It'll be fine. It'll, you know, right. I mean, they're girls and versus boys, but why would I do it any different? And we always got compliments on, on our sons and you know, how kind they were and good kids and all of that. And well, we quickly found out that didn't make any sense either. And it was hard. It was hard. Not so much in the number. That's what people kept thinking. Yeah. Well, of course you went from three to six and they're all little. And it was no, that's not it. Mm-hmm. I worked with kids my whole life, you know, I, that wasn't it. And I knew that in my gut, I didn't quite at the time know how to explain that to other people. Right. Um, especially the people that weren't living it. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes I think I came across angry and all those things, but really I was just totally overwhelmed and scared. And I, I, I mean, I felt like the rug was pulled under my feet because I had felt like a great mom going into this. Yeah. And yeah. All oh, relate. I relate so much to that, and I know so many moms do where, you know, we do go into this because we love kids, we love being moms, and we think, I, I can do this for other children, I can right. adopt these kids, and then it's so different, and we have to learn so many new things, so tell us about that journey. Well, and all, the other thing people thought it was was the language. Well, my girls were speaking fluent English in about three and a half months. Yeah. You know, they, it, it didn't matter. I mean, when they didn't speak English, it was because the oldest one was persuading the little ones not to. So we wouldn't understand. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were just very, you know, she was very street savvy, even though she was five. And um, she was mom role before me and all of that. So that was probably the first hard thing we hit that she just couldn't give up that role. And, and I, I didn't know that's what it was at the time. I don't know if that makes any sense, but 
yeah. it more seemed like, you know, controlling and manipulation and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, normal labels you put on kid behavior. Um, but what I learned later was, was, you know, it was her being in survival and her just, that's all she knew how to do. Yeah. Um, that's what she was wired to do, you know, so Mm-hmm. That was difficult. Not, I mean, she, she and orphanage had shoes that were literally two inches too short for her. And she came, of course, to this plethora of beautiful clothing and she hated it all. Mm-hmm. And she hated all the shoes and she threw it and stomped on it. And you know, it's like, mm-hmm. wow, not what we anticipated. Not that we were not, um, we weren't on the other side of, oh, we'll save them and give them the best life ever. Right. But we really and they're going to be so them. grateful. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You were smart enough not to think that. No, we knew that there would be struggle, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, that was just more of her, her trauma and stuff. So, yeah. Um, and then, and then it was, it just went on from there. I mean, it was super hard holes in all the walls and, you know, um, all the food stuff that goes on, went on at our, every food thing you can think of, because our kids were, had a lot of, deprivation in regards to food when they're little you know they just they had no idea how to receive all that we wanted to give them and Mm -hmm. and even just receive like our life how blessed we were that they just they had no idea how to do that Mm -hmm. and so yeah it was hard it was hard and and the whole piece of my husband didn't have the same experiences I did because he worked all day Mm -hmm. you know and then worrying oh my gosh what did we do to the boys to live in this chaos. And I mean, yeah, it was all there. Well, those were two things that came right to my mind when you were telling the story is how did your other children fare? How, and yeah, I know for me, that's probably one of my deepest sorrows and regrets is I wish I had handled that better, shielded them a little yes. more. If I could have, I don't know. How, how about yours? Right. Okay. How old are well, you now? Just now, oh gosh, I should have rehearsed this. Um, <laughs> it's okay. So, but they're not all the same ages. It's okay. They are 23, 23, 21, 20, 23, 23, 21, 20, <laughs> 20, 19. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and, and my, yeah. Our baby just started college this year. Okay. Um, okay. And then our three year old granddaughter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like I so yeah. I want to hear about that too. But okay, so your your boys, tell us just a little bit about that. Um so my youngest has a couple scars to show that uh what he dealt with. That being said, when they were young teens, uh had a chance. I took I made the chance to sit down with each of them and um talk to them about you know, our decision to adopt and everything mm-hmm. that we've been mm-hmm. through. They each, I'll just paraphrase, but they each individually said the same thing. They didn't know they did, but, um, and said that they're glad we adopted. Um, of course they love their sisters. One's, one's harder to love, but they love her. She still struggles a lot. They, they all three said in their own way that this has made them a better man and will make them better uh, fathers. And, and I saw that as they grew up um, in how they, um, they they could handle other people's differences. Like they got it, that we're all yes. different and that we need to meet everybody where they're at. And um, not to say that it wasn't hard for them, but we I had a mantra for that. And that was that this behavior isn't acceptable 
but it's understandable because oh. we know, because we know. And so I taught my boys everything I ever learned. You know, I taught them at their level yeah. that this is because of that break in their primary attachment figure. You know, so I'd say to my boys, you have never not had me. So right. you will never know why a kid would do that really, mm -hmm. but you can know it here. That was our big go-to. Not, this is not okay. And we're going to work on making sure this doesn't happen again. But when we know why we can forgive and mm -hmm. we can move forward. Mm -hmm. So I just worked mm -hmm. really hard to make sure that they knew it wasn't them. That when I was sad or when I was struggling, because I did lots of times to let them always know I'm sad that this happened to their sisters and that, but that I'm going to figure out how we all make it to happy and healthy. And where did you end up finding help? How did you, now you're, I mean, you were years ahead of a bunch of us, you know, in the adoption world. A lot of my friends adopted a little later, you know, we started the process in 2006. So yeah. when you were bringing your girls home, there were fewer resources even than when we brought our kids home. So how yeah. did you find help? Where did you find it? Lisa, I'm going to be honest with you. I, there, I, I, there was nothing. Even yeah. my agency was so new. The owner of the agent, the director of the agency had adopted too, but not that many years ahead of me. And, you know, they were struggling. I mean, it was just, I don't know. I, I quite honestly, that what I started doing was major research. Mm -hmm. I didn't read adoption books. I did research brain neurology. Um, I did research on abuse and neglect and, you know, I just, I did everything I could. I went to all kinds of, um, conferences and workshops that were meant for, um, not me, <laughs> <laughs> not me in the field, but I went anyway and just tried to kind of not have to talk, but it was all these, uh, you know, science, neuroscientists and I just, whatever I could sneak into and then, you know, just trying to survive it. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of started getting this hunch that what I was missing was that my kids were, my girls were not where my boys were. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was another piece that helped me was that, that I got to see them developmentally right next to each other. And yes. at first I got, I got, oh, I'll just say it. I got mad or frustrated when a girl wouldn't do what a boy could do because it, because it felt like they didn't want to, or they wouldn't, you know, it felt mm -hmm. defiant. Mm -hmm. Then as I started learning more, then I went, wait a minute. Why, you know, comparing them, expecting them to act the same is tripping them up. is tripping the girls up. They can't, you know, they're not doing it over and over. And then it was, why would they choose to not do it over and over? You know, mm -hmm. and, and I learned that, you know, human beings are, are created to, to, to fit in, you know, to be, to be included in a group and not like, why would my girls choose this over and over to be so naughty at the mm -hmm. time? Mm -hmm. And so that started getting my attention. And then I decided, okay, I got to stop doing that. I got to stop using where the boys are as the measurement for where the girls should be and treat them all as individuals, mm -hmm. which turned out to be the gift for all, all six of them, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we're, we're, you know, we're, we're of that mentality so much. We group, you know, we expect you're this age, you should be able to do X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. um, even laws in the United States, you're 16, you should be able to drive. It's like, no, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, in so many ways. 
And so when I started kind of more meeting each of them right where they're at, that everything shifted, including my connectedness with the girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I started um, knowing that, so my boys were very friendly. I have a really big extended family and everybody gets together all the time and my boys could do it and they, yeah. could, they could be fine. My girls, so much not. It caused this big wedge in our relationships. But I, I talk about that anything that causes a wedge in the relationship with your child, you need to look at and get out of the way. Mm-hmm. It's your job as mom or dad, you know. And so um, because they need us, you know, I just knew that. I just knew if our oldest daughter had to do something, do something different, go somewhere else, which we were suggested quite often to do, have her go. Mm-hmm. disrupt basically I do it oh. be the end of her because there wasn't much she had been through so much yeah and so it was a struggle to keep doing that and so one way we did that was go okay if this makes me feel bad as mom I gotta do something about it because the my relationship with these kids was absolutely had to be most important mm-hmm. and so it started shifting and started shifting and like I said it I mean it's um the brain wiring has been impacted. It was impacted the day they came to us. And, you know, that takes a long, long time to change. And overall with my daughter, the oldest daughter who suffered the most uh, abuse and and neglect and everything else, it has taken a long time, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you what, the great thing is, and what I finally decided I wanted to be was, or wanted to make sure that would happen for all of my daughters was that they had a one and only in, in the world, in their life. Mm-hmm. that they weren't alone, you know, that they didn't feel alone, that they knew there was going to be someone there no matter what, for as long as it takes, just and no matter what, you know. And so she's had a lot of struggles and there, we've all had a lot of struggles. But to this day, when she gets scared, when the weather's bad, when whatever it is that is tripping her up, she calls me mm-hmm. and says, mm-hmm. Mom, you know, okay, that that's my goal, Matt, because right. Um, Nobody should have to feel like they don't belong somewhere. You know, nobody should have to feel alone. Right. So, so even though maybe it didn't look like what you'd hoped for in terms of attachment or anything. (laughs) Yeah. But you're still her safe. You're her secure base. Even if I call it her safety. Her safety net. Okay. Yeah. That's really, that's really, really good. That's so important. And that's really hard to come to. I mean, you really have to grieve. Like I said, my whole beginning of my story is me making all the plans. Yeah. Not, not even knowing the person I was planning with, you know, Mm -hmm. that, yeah. Mm -hmm. We have to grieve it and see if we it. At some point you started moving into serving other families supporting yes. other families, educating other families. Tell us about what led you there and then about the book and things like that. Well, it was a couple of years into the adoption. I was miserable. Everything I thought I knew was ineffective. Everywhere I turned, people said, your deal, you chose to adopt, deal with it. You know, yes. there weren't other, there weren't support groups. I mean, I didn't find one ever. And I didn't live far from, you know, the cities in, in Minneapolis and, and St. Paul. There should have been, but there wasn't. Uh, people didn't believe us, you know, at the time. I don't think people didn't want to talk about it. Anyway, mm-hmm. nothing was working. And I'm not, I, I, once I get to a point, I'm not, I'm not a stay stuck person. 
Mm-hmm. I got to scramble and I got to figure my way because, well, there were li- as far as I was concerned, there were lives involved. There were hearts involved. And it wasn't just mine. It was my sons and my daughters. It was my marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, it was my relationships, with my extended family. It was all being impacted by this misery that I felt. And so um started working and working and working. And I started, I first actually started a travel group for other parents because even that, we are from, you know, central Minnesota farmland and we went to Russia. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. big. Um, and I'm from a time where you ducked and covered in the hallway, you know, because yeah. of uh, USSR and things like that. So um, anyway, I started with that because I needed to be able to do something that was measurable, that would help me know I was impacting the world positively. I could measure that. Then, and okay, wait, let me, them a lot. So let me ask, okay. what was a travel group? I, oh, sorry. A travel group was just basically getting these other families who had never done this before. Mm-hmm. Many of them who were in such a precarious situation. Now we were blessed. We had bio kids, but so many of them, this was their, finally their kid. This was yeah. finally going to make them a mom and a dad. And they had been through loss and hard stories. And so, you know, you're already feeling vulnerable. And then you go and you, you go to a kind of a scary place 18 years ago. It wasn't kind of, it was a scary place. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, well, I could help because I could tell them exactly what would happen along the way, what they needed, uh, that kind of thing. Okay. So I did okay. that for a while. And they were ready. They'd come back and they'd go, Stacy, it happened exactly how you said. We knew what to say. We knew what to do. It was, just, you know, I remember one mom saying, oh my gosh, I thought I was scared. What if I wouldn't have known what to say? You know? Yeah. So yeah. that's how it started. And then I started support groups soon after that. <laughs> because they all, they all started bringing their children home and then they really yeah. needed help, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so yeah. did you originally just gather as you know, a support group and you just educated them on things you had learned and things you were trying with your kids? Yeah, originally. And the agency, um, the director uh, was a licensed social worker. So, and she had adopted as well a few years before mm-hmm. my, our, our family. So we kind of worked as a team. Um, and we did, uh, you know, first it was just the moms and then it was a parents group. And then along with that, we did a dad's group. And then I, she actually um, closed the agency, and so I continued from there. And so then I continued to have groups in the Twin Cities, all over the Twin, all over Minnesota, really, um, mm-hmm. till I don't know, two thousand and seven or eight. Okay, nine maybe. And you wrote a book. When did you write your book? Uh, I wrote my book about two thousand twelve. Um, people kept saying, Stacey, you got to write this down. You got to write this down. You got to write this down. There's not enough of you. So yeah, that was one of the, the the second hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, after becoming an adoptive parent (laughs) and figuring this out. Um, Writing writing the book. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm lucky enough to have a good friend that I just spit it all out and, and she wrote the basics and then I went in and made it me. Oh, so, that sounds um, good. <laughs> out first. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, get past my own self. Parents were just kept asking, could you write this down? We need these tools. Mm-hmm. And I was all about the tools. And I said, yes, I can. Here's, here's what I decided with the book is that, I, you know, there are lots of adoption journey stories and they're all absolutely valuable, but I knew I didn't need to write another one of those because mine right. wasn't that different. What I really wanted to write was something where, 
um, when you hit hit a wall and there was no one there that could help you know what to say or do, you could look up a strategy to try or a tool to try. Mm-hmm. And so the majority of the book is tools and strategies. Great. And Great. that was my goal. I kind of envision it this dog-eared thing where you hit lying again for the 15th time, you know, mm-hmm. and you go back in. What do I know about lying? What impacts lying? You know, what tools have I tried? Oh, I haven't tried this one yet. Let me go do this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that. And we'll have a link to your book in the show notes. What? Tell us the title of the book. It's called Adoptive Parent, Intentional Parent. You also have parent support groups online now. I mean, we don't have to do it in person anymore, right? We can, right. but, but we can do it's much way better. Yeah. Yeah, we can. It's not better. I shouldn't say that. It's way more. It, uh, I can it's make accessible. so many more people. Right. It's just it's accessible. accessible for so many people. Right. Yes. Yeah. Because even being able to come and leave your kids at home was, was really, has been really difficult. For yes. Years and years. Yes. Case, right there, you know, mm-hmm. and so you, if, if your child needs you, your family needs you, you're right there. Mm-hmm. So that has been yeah, invaluable. So yeah, we have, um, I don't, I think we're up to maybe eight or nine different countries involved in the coaching group. Wow. Yeah. The reality is the journey is the same. Yes. <laughs> the journey yeah. of thoughts, the journey of trauma, mm-hmm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's the same. There's a few tweaks along the way, age and sure. things like that. For the most part, it's the same tools and strategies. It's really mm-hmm. understanding that we have to be intentional about how we parent our kiddos. Right. Right. And you started something new just recently. Tell us about that too. Uh, yeah, we started recently a page called Trauma, and it's Trauma-Sensitive Teachers on Facebook. And uh, I was telling you that how fast it has grown. I mean, that does my heart good because yes. here's the thing. We have our kids for the majority of the time. Then we send our kids to their teachers for the other biggest portion of their life. Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, to, to have us be working from the same angle can only be absolutely incredibly healing for our mm-hmm. kiddos. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that one of the biggest struggles that parents hit and what they come to me for help with is, is school. And it's mm-hmm. about how to help my kid be successful at school and not just academically, right. um, but have our kids not be the ones that are labeled you know, that kid or the hard kid or Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And so the fact that teachers and other educational personnel are so excited to learn about this, oh, it just, I have goosebumps even thinking about it because it's going to make all the difference in the world. It really is. Yes. And then um, we are, we are beta launching right now. We have the intentional parent coaching group for families, for parents. And then we have what's called impact for teachers. And so that is a monthly um, group that they're part of and they get all kinds of tools and strategies and Q and a time and, and things like that. So we're excited about that. I really believe in us being forming a partnership. It can't be like, it's always been where parents take their kids, drop them off for teacher, teacher takes over. Then they go back home and mom takes over because it, it, just, it, it that, that's not consistent enough for our kids. And they need to do attachment one person at a time. And they need things to be consistent across the line to help them keep from being triggered all the time and to help them heal from their trauma and things like that. So we're looking forward to creating more of a, an intentional relationship across, you know, from parent to teacher, teacher to parent. 
that's a whole new way of thinking. Yeah, it is. It is. So then the teacher becomes part of the family's team in essence for, well, part of the child's team, really. Because they're they're understanding the child's unique needs and can work together with the parents. And that's so great. And it kind of has to be the parent's responsibility to help them do that. You know I mean? It has to be back and forth. It can't be, okay, we're going to be mad at the teachers because they don't get our kids. Mm-hmm. Or by, or it can't be teachers saying, oh, these families would only do X, Y, and Z. You know, right. in our case, in, in, in the case of adoption, foster kids, even kinship, guardian, all the kids who have families who are really trying to help them heal, not maybe in the trenches, and, you know, mm-hmm. um, like a bio family might be, it's really our responsibility for, for us to work together and not right. say it's the other person's fault or the other person's problem. Yeah, I am still learning how to navigate that myself. I mean, my boys went into school. Let me think. I think this is the fall of their fourth year in school because I homeschooled before that. Because I had homeschooled, I didn't really know how to navigate the school system. And, you know, a lot of things have happened in those four years. And but I feel like I'm figuring it out better and better. Like I'm figuring out how to talk to the teachers and explain things better and how to advocate for my child better. The need for me to stay on top of things, you know, like I can't just hope that that grade and that class is going to somehow magically fix itself. Because what I find with my kids is when, when they start sinking, when the grade starts going down, when they start not um, getting work done, their anxiety goes up and then they really don't know how to dig themselves out. So they need the parents and the teachers to help them and support them and figure it out. Right. Yep. And uh, that's what we're finding. And until all of us can, you know, become, I call them intentional parents. And now I'm looking for intentional teachers. Mm -hmm. And there's four parts of being an intentional parent. And that is, first of all, you have to be able to wrap your head around the fact that you have to do this differently, just like my story starts with, okay, I'll do it just the same. Why wouldn't I? They're kids. They're the same age. You know, no, our, no, there's a whole different beginning. There's a whole different reason for every behavior, every word. It, it, we just have to totally do it differently. Number two, we have to figure out how to meet our kids where our kids are at, mm-hmm. not where their chronological, you know, counterparts might be, not where their brother might've been. And, and, and not only where they're at, but where they're at at any given moment, because mm-hmm. some days I can remember where my shoes are and I can walk directly to them and get them on when I'm told to. But other days, because of the impact that trauma's had on my limbic system or, you know, my memory or any of those things going on, I can't. Mm-hmm. And so I got to meet that kid where he's at on that day, you know, whether it's the day he can or the day he can't, I got to meet him there and help him be successful. Because the more successful he is, the more opportunity there is for new brain wearing to happen. Right. We can't, you know, the newest research tells us over and over again, and this is why we wanted to work with teachers too, is that to help our kids heal, to help this new brain wearing to happen, it all has to begin in this empathetic relationship. Yes. It's all relational. And so we're mad at our kid because they can't find their shoe. We're not doing what it takes to create new brain wiring. If our teachers are labeling our kids, I mean, a mom just got a message home about a six-year-old and how defiant he has been over the last three days. 
Mm. Oh, I just wanted to go away. You know, this Mm -hmm. wasn't defiance. This was this kid totally being triggered and no one understanding that this was impacts of trauma they were seeing. And so they labeled it. And then of course, I think they cap you. I think, I think we can cap our kids at what Mm. we believe that they are. So I want those teachers to become intentional too. I want them to meet their kids right where they're at when they're there. And, but unless we know, which is the third part of being intentional, unless we can identify trauma and the impacts of trauma and how they look and where they happen to our kiddos, you know, we're not, we're not going to be able to. And then, and then the final part is to commit to parent, actively parent longer than you would ever have imagined. <laughs> yes. It might've been my husband's biggest challenge. You know, this is yeah. fine. We'll just make it to 18 hanging on white knuckle. I'm like, yeah. I don't think that's how it's going to work. <laughs> and no. it hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and also continue to use those tools and techniques and strategies that work for our kids, which might and usually do mean you do it differently than the people around you. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's just really what it takes. And so I just want to, you know, continue to help parents learn how to be intentional parents. But then now we're reaching out and hoping that teachers can be intentional teachers and they can have this great partnership going on because it's going to make a world of difference for our kiddos. Yes. And you know, I think a lot of teachers, they want to understand our kids. It's a little tricky because sometimes, you know, we have to decide how much we're going to share about our kids' stories. And I think most teachers want to understand, they want to help our kids, but they don't even know where they're coming from. You know, there's the idea, well, you know, your child, I know your kid's adopted, but you adopted him as a baby, right? You know, and so we have to be able to explain enough to say, actually, even that is a trauma, you know? Right, absolutely. Yeah, I I think teachers do want to know. I mean, teachers went into teaching to impact the lives of children. So right. we have to always, I, you know, absolutely start by giving them grace for sure. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what they don't know. They have not been trained. It's not a part of an educator's training to understand trauma yet. And we're going to hope right. that we get there someday. They, they heard it. There's the buzzword is out there, right? but they don't have the tools actually put in place. And mm-hmm. yeah, in, in regards to that relationship piece, we do have to be able to help these teachers understand what, is going on with our kid, what works for our kid, what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it's sad because on both sides of that relationship, those adults really almost don't even, many adults don't even know what they need to know to help each other. That's so true. They don't. And that's, that's what true. the tools are about and impact. It's like, hey, teachers, you need to ask these questions so you can then take those answers and apply them here. And parents right. are not telling you. They don't know that that will help you. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of, we have to just start over, I think, and know that we just don't know. So the, 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 the issue is if a kid spends all day at school triggered or anxiety is super high, which most of them do, they mm-hmm. walk around, you know, waiting for the shoe to drop for so long. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're just depleted because you're not there. You're, their safety net isn't there. Their teachers are second and third, but their safety net isn't there. Then when they come home, what do they bring home to us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're a mess. They're a mess. Mm-hmm. And they're supposed to do homework. And they're supposed to meet all these other expectations. And even if we just got that uh, between teacher and parent so that um, that didn't have to happen, 
because that's another one of those wedges in your relationship. There's, there's actually old research out there that says our kids do, our kids can do really well at one or the other, mm-hmm. but they very often cannot do well at both. And that's because of that. That's because they spend so much time in fight, flight, or freeze, or, you know, with that high, high anxiety that they carry with. And the sad part is none of them, well, not none of them, but most of them don't even look like it. They look mm-hmm. like they're large and charged and in control because they're survivors. You know, they, they cover it up well. But really, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, how, how school goes is so crucial into how our families do, you know, on an everyday basis. So I'm, I'm looking forward to working harder on that. I love that. I think that's really wonderful. Well, if you wanted parents listening to remember one thing, from our whole interview, which uh, there's so much good stuff here, but is there one thing that you just want to speak to the hearts of the parents? Well, I guess what I, I was thinking of all the little strategies, but mm-hmm. maybe the one overall thing, and if you don't have it, the strategies won't work either. And that is that there is hope. Mm-hmm. There is hope. And as long as we believe there's hope, our kiddos can believe there's hope. You know, this is why so many times I see families, parents, moms, that really have lost hope. They're just kind of like, I don't think I can do this anymore. This mm-hmm. kid doesn't like us, doesn't want to be part of our family. I'll, I'm going to say, I'm going to call no. That's not true. That might be what you see. That's this behavior right here that you see. I always do this to people. It's not annoying, mm-hmm. but that's to get your attention. What's really going on is what's back here. And this is what we have to look for. And this is where we can help our kiddos heal. And, you know, if we give way to this behavior and we say, okay, that's all the better it's going to be. And we lose hope. Our kids will lose hope too. There's, I've seen it time and time again. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's hard, but really it's about staying in there for no matter what. And as long as it takes, and it's Mm -hmm. about doing it differently. Okay. I said three different things. (laughs) (laughs) You can't do those other things if you don't have the hope. And so I don't think anybody should quit on their kid. I don't care if your kid's in jail. I don't care if your kid's been in residential for six years. I don't care. You are their one and only. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. deserve as a human being to have a one and only. And that's, that's going to be their hope. Mm-hmm. You are your child's best okay. chance at healing. That's what I want to say. You I love as that. Okay. Re- repeat that again. I want to hear that again. You, you know, as parent are your child's best chance at healing. You're, I always say, everybody else, the therapists and the teachers and all of them, they're great. They're the frosting. Mm-hmm. But you're the cake. There's, yeah. there's nowhere to put all of them if your relationship with your child isn't working, mm-hmm. isn't there, isn't, isn't, you know, doesn't have that hope. Yeah, yeah. So well, that's good. So you know, I spend a lot of time talking to moms about having hope and you know, knowing what is their part in all of this and what is God's part. And it, it hope is so important because when we lose it, I think we lose compassion. We lose the desire to persevere because if, if we don't believe that there will be good at the end of the day, there will be good. It may not look the way we think it's going to look. If we don't believe that, I think we can fall into despair, you know, just too discouraged. And so, yes, I think we need to maintain hope and we need to encourage one another because when I don't have hope, maybe you will, you know, and that's where community comes in. 
That's where having other adoptive and foster parents um, surrounding you is so important because we understand each other. We understand that even when everything looks terrible, that even when we're mad or whatever it is, that our heart is still for our child, even even in the low moments, you know? Yeah, that's uh, in the coaching group, within the, the, the very first feedback we hear, and it's usually within a week, mm-hmm. is probably for my heart the best. I know that I've done something good. Is we will hear mom say, I have, I am so relieved. Yes. I feel, I feel like the weight has been lifted off in a week. And mm-hmm. you know what it is? It's because they're surrounded by other people that get it. Yeah, they're not alone. You know, they aren't alone anymore and they know that it's not them, that they're not big failures, you know, but that we're all struggling to do the best that we can. And, and it's complex. It's not like parenting other kids. It's different. It's it's very counterintuitive and yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's complex. It's a good word. It is. And our own stuff gets in the way, you know, I mean, everything gets pulled up into focus. Mm-hmm. Um, as you parent these kids, you can kind of turn your head when you're doing your bio kids, you can kind of just let things go. Well, that's like uncle Charlie or that, you know, mm-hmm. but when you're doing this, the, the focus is on you. And yeah. so you have to know that you're okay too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Stacy. We will put, um, all the contact information for you in the show notes where people can find you, where they can find out about your groups, your teacher group, your parent group, um, your book, all of that will be in the notes, but thank you so much sure. for being on the podcast. Thank you. And thanks for all your work you're doing too, Lisa. Well, Lisa, that was a great interview with Stacy. She's got so much wisdom. And like you said, she has really been on this journey so much longer than we have. Although it's funny, I think about my adoption journey and I think about having been involved in the adoption world since the eighties. So, but she's been <laughs> well, an adoptive parent longer than me. <laughs> yes, that's true. But it really, we need to someday really spend some time talking about your adoption story. Cause it's very, very interesting. I need to interview you. Yeah, you should. I we should interview ourselves. Okay, let's do it. Well, I really appreciated Stacy giving us her time and sharing so much because, like you said, she has a lot of wisdom. I definitely am so curious and interested about, you know, these trauma-sensitive classrooms and teachers, and I'm so glad she's taking that on. I'm really glad she is, too. I just think back to just my own school experience. I mean, we can all think about that kid who was awkward or annoying or the troublemaker. I was a rule follower. So I just was always like appalled at these kids. And, you know, in hindsight, gosh, I have such a different perspective on some of my classmates growing up just now that I understand trauma and its impact. And gosh, I, I wish the teachers, and I had great teachers, but I wish they had been trauma sensitive or trauma informed. Yeah, you know, I talk with my kids pretty often about they'll they'll talk about something that happened at school or a classmate or and I I really try to encourage them to have empathy and think about why might that child, that student act that way? Why might that girl behave the way she does or that boy who lashes out, you know? Because there is always a reason for behavior, you know? And it may not be obvious to our kids, but I do think that my children have 
much more insight, and probably yours do too, than a lot of kids do because we talk about trauma all the time and how it affects people. I think that's been one of the silver linings. It has not been easy to bring hurt kids into our home with formerly healthy, well-adjusted siblings, but I think that has been one of the blessings is that they do have big hearts and a different perspective on the world. They do. They understand why people act the way that they do. And it has really given them more compassion than judgment, which I'm really thankful for. I completely agree. It means the world to me to have kids who are empathetic and caring. All the information on how to contact Stacy, connect with her, um, hear more about her resources will all be at the show notes. Like Lisa said at the beginning, she has a couple Facebook groups Definitely one we want to point our teachers towards. Um, all of that will be at the show notes, which you can find at theadoptionconnection.com slash 18. Hey guys, before we jump into the mentor moment, I just want to encourage you to be looking for the simple pleasures in life. I know it's getting really dicey as we get closer and closer to Christmas and the rest of the holiday season, but I have been really encouraged this week to just look for the little things in life that maybe have nothing to do with our kids' behavior. It might just be some dewdrops on a flower or frost on a windshield, just something to remind us of the little things in life that we can find beauty and encouragement in. So we would love for you to post pictures of what these little simple pleasures are in your life. We would love to see your pictures, either post them in our Facebook group or post them on Instagram and use the hashtag the adoption connection. And that way we can all be following along and enjoying each other's simple pleasures. If you're not connected with us on Facebook or Instagram, we are in both places at The Adoption Connection and would love to connect with you there. We've come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener's question. This week's question is from Anna. I was wondering about how to handle chronic lying with kiddos that are either adopted or foster kiddos, not just lying about maybe things that um, they're trying to hide, but just kind of excessive lying about like every single thing, like even little things that you don't need to lie about. And it just kind of happens all the time. Like which ones do you just kind of ignore? Um, and then which ones do you try to correct, especially when you know that they are lying? First of all, I want to say I love hearing Anna's question. I'm so glad she called in and and I just want to encourage any of you who have a question for us, you can, you can send it in to us in other ways, but hearing her voice just makes this so much more interesting to me. So on to Anna's question about lying. I think that lying is rooted in a lack of trust. So when our children don't have secure attachment to us, they deep within have fear because they don't feel safe. We are not yet their secure base. And in that lack of felt safety, they desperately need to maintain control. And so sometimes they will lie about things that simply do not matter at all in an effort, well, hold on to their need to stay safe. Lisa, you hit the nail on the head about the control piece. And it's so hard because a lot of times when we label behaviors that help our kids feel safe and in control, it's also easy to call them controlling and manipulative kids. Right, which, which they're not. That's not what this is about. 
No, and it, and that's a really fine line for us to walk because I think as soon as we go there mentally, it's really hard to continue to have compassion for our kids. And we've all been there. We all slip into that space. But I think just as a general rule, it's important to understand why our kids are behaving that way, but then also not to villainize what they're doing, even though it's so, so hard when our kids just can't seem to tell the truth. But on a practical level, well, actually, I'm going to also talk about another reason for lying. And I don't think this is what Anna's talking about here, but since we're talking about lying, I think it's important. Our kids have had some really hard things happen to them. And sometimes we don't even know what they're storing in their bodies and in their minds. And as a protective mechanism, sometimes kids create a fantasy world to kind of dissociate from some of those hard times or hard memories. And if they've created a habit out of that, sometimes they really damage their ability to even understand the line between reality and fantasy. That happened to one of our children. And so it was hard for us to believe her, but there was also a lot of compassion because she actually really believed herself in a lot of cases. There's also another phenomenon that's related to this called confabulation. And it's kind of this almost pathological lying, but again, where the person really truly believes that whatever they're telling you is true. That being said, sometimes, you know, our kids are just trying to control to feel safe. And so they might just blurt out the sky is green or some other ridiculous thing. It's obvious that they're not telling the truth. Um, and like Anna said, you know, these are things that not even line, you know, to stay out of trouble, but they're just telling things that are not true and everyone knows they're not true. So what do you do with that? I shared this phrase before, but this is my new favorite parenting response. Um, thanks for sharing. It's, acknowledges that you heard them. It doesn't necessarily commit that you believe them, but you don't want to get into a control battle with a child over something like this. It's not a hill to die on. And we always will lose control battles with kids from hard places. I want to add too, that when you say thanks for sharing, I think that's where we have to be super careful with our tone of voice, because if you say it in a snarky, sarcastic way, it's very dismissive. Like you have to say it in a way that really, thank you for, thank you for sharing your thoughts, you know, because you say, well, thanks for sharing, you know, then it, it gives a totally different feel. Yeah, you're so right. And I'm totally guilty of that. Thanks for sharing <laughs> snarkiness. But I don't know. How did you know, Lisa? <laughs> <laughs> because it's so easy to go there. But yeah, for sure. It has to show genuine interest that you're interested in what they're saying. And I did a Facebook Live about this in a group a couple months ago that anytime we ask our children a question, we have to be committed to trusting their answer. And so along with that goes with if you are not sure that your child can give you a truthful answer or that you aren't going to be able to accept what comes out of their mouth as truth. Um, then just try not to ask the question. And I know a lot of times our kids will volunteer information that is just ridiculous and obviously not true. But sometimes after such a long history of repetitive untruths coming out of our kids' mouths, it's easy to not trust them. But sometimes that can be a dangerous slippery slope because it turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so we don't want our kids to be labeled as liars or you know other things because then they'll just play into that because 
they already are having trouble believing their own self-worth. And so they'll create situations to, you know, play into these things that they believe to be true about themselves, that they're not worthy or they are liars or whatever it is. So be really committed if you ask your child a question to accept the answer, even if you're pretty sure it's not true. Um, Because again, you don't want to get into a control battle about a truth or a lie. So that's my shtick online. And I would agree. um, I have a child who can be somewhat prone to lying. And I just literally try not to, if, if it's a situation where I'm trying to figure out what's going on, I try not to ask questions. Okay. So all that being said about believing our kids, sometimes we know for sure, for sure, for sure that there's a truth to be had. And some of our kids are in a place where they, we can wait out the truth. And we have not always been able to do that with all of our kids based on kind of how fragile they were in the moment. But we do have a child right now who we can kind of push and challenge a little bit more. And so recently we had a situation where we knew there was a truth to be had. We had lots of moments of non-connected parenting on the way to this, but at the end, I could tell that he was starting to crack and he really, really wanted to tell the truth, but he was really, really too scared to. And it was about something that he had done, which was a pretty poor decision. I just looked him in the eyes and I grabbed his hands and I said, would you want me to hold your hands while you tell me the truth? And he said, yes. And so I just kind of gathered him up and held him close and he told me the whole story. So I know that's hard to do sometimes because it's so frustrating when our kids are lying on top of something else that they shouldn't have done in the first place. But I think it goes back to what Lisa said at the very, very beginning about our kids and how safe they feel. So I'll just leave you with that little story. And it's beautiful. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that, Melissa. If you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, you can always send an email to email at theadoptionconnection.com. Or as Lisa said at the beginning, it is so much more fun to hear your voice And sometimes it's easier to express your question if you just have to talk it out. So feel free to call our listener hotline at 208-741-3880. And again, that line does not ring anywhere. So you can call it day or night, anytime from anywhere in the world. And if you need more personalized help or you're still just wondering what to do about a situation that involves lying, For your family, we do offer private coaching and we would love to offer you a complimentary coaching session. For more information about that, you can head to theadoptionconnection.com slash services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.